So par. Trent. So par. Nice to see you. Uh, what have you been eating? Um, most recently, I had butterscotch ice cream. Ooh. Um, how was uh, just out of the fridge? Freezer. Out of the freezer, yeah. It was good. I I watched it. What was I the fucked. portion? Um. Well, it was. It's out of like a like a big um. Carton? What do you call it? Cart carton, a sure. Tub. Tub. That's the better word. Um. And then I I put some into a bowl, and I had Naturally. it with my family as I watched the King of Staten Island on HBO Max. Did your whole family engage in the ice cream eating? Did they have different um, flavors? Same flavor? No, just just my brother and I had the same flavor, but um, yeah. So it was a Marate viewing night. It was, a, whole... it was a watch party, if you will. So correct me if I'm wrong. King of Staten Island is a rated R picture. Yeah. Yet Virage. He's thirteen. At. <laughs> uh, but he was with someone over the age of seventeen. Exactly. So, I guess in the eyes of the law. In the eyes of the law, he was he was a okay. What about you, Trent? What did you eat? Um, I've been watching. I rented watching. the Muppet. Excuse me. Uh, well, what I was watching, what I was eating, happened simultaneously. Intermingling, much like mine. Wow, we marry each other. We should start a podcast together. Moving on. Uh, I was wa- I rented the Muppets Take Manhattan yesterday because suspiciously it's the only Muppet movie. Well, it's one of the few Muppet movies that isn't on Disney Plus, along with Muppets from Space. And yeah, Muppets from Space and Muppets Take Manhattan are, for no good reason, the only two Muppets movies that aren't on Disney Plus, even though Disney owns all of them and has releases from before and after. So it's like they're withholding them unnecessarily. And this was the only Muppet movie I hadn't seen. And uh, I rented it yesterday. And then I want to get my money's worth, so I'm watching it again today, and I drank a smoothie side by side. Wow, what kind of smoothie? It was my usual smoothie concoction. It's, like, the only nutrients I get. Uh, It's my daily intake of, like, life support. Uh, One banana, some frozen mixed berries, a yogurt, some cranberry juice, blended up, and then ate that with uh, a rice cake. And called, called that dinner. I uh, lost my debit card, so I've been living off the land of the groceries I bought previously until I can get a new source of income. You know you know what you should do during the time of the, the intro music we're about to play? What? You should, you should get a new debit card. I ordered it. It's in the mail. Oh, okay. okay. I'm not an animal. I canceled it. I handled it. But, okay, so um, Trent, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut to the intro, and when we come back, we're going to find out, does Trent get it, does Trent get his debit card? Does that sound, how does that sound as a plan? (laughs) Wait, wait, I'm confused. Like, like, we're going to cut to intro, right? Sure, sure. And in the time of the intro, you tell me if the, if a package arrived. Oh. Containing your debit card. It hasn't, it it isn't here. No, 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 but we're going to cut to, the the viewers will never know Trent, they're fucking stupid. They have no fucking clue what's going on. (laughs) They don't know how much time's actually elapsed. I'm stupid. I don't know what's going on. My debit card isn't going to be here anytime soon. Trent, you got to play along with the joke. I've had to get really creative in the kitchen, Parth. I'm starving. Trent, Trent, just do this for me. Look at my. Trent, we can't see. It's this is an audio medium. It is an audio. What what are you doing? All right, what what's the bit you want me to do? I'll play along. 
the bit just, is we're gonna cut to the intro and yeah. over the course of the intro we're gonna be like oh my god so much time has elapsed have you gotten your debit card yet right uh-huh and the I'm viewers are so yes our no. view i have so much like disdain for our viewers right <laughs> so i'm gonna fucking lie to them and i'm gonna say you fucking like like i'm gonna be like oh my god dude it's been like so long have you gotten it yet and you're gonna be like no man i haven't because we can we, we can manufacture this in the edit and exactly they, they, they can't and see just, our faces and they can't the tie it to us time. exactly that's editing that's photo montage. That's the magic of the movies, Parth. Exactly. All right, that, let's that's uh, what we do. Let's manipulate some Spotify users. All right, let, let's. Shall we cut to the intro? All right, Parth, it's uh, later now. Time has passed, am I wrong? Oh my god, it's been like, what, several... Tell me the unit of time we're gonna lie to... I mean, tell our viewers. Uh, If I were to theoretically receive my credit card, I I think I'm expecting it in the next week or so. To be honest, TD Bank wouldn't send it anywhere but my house. And then my parents have to send it to me. Okay, so since it's been a New few Jersey. weeks since our, like, before the intro, like, have you gotten it yet? Because, like, I feel no, like... No, it still hasn't come. Isn't that ridiculous? Oh my god, really? Wow. That's, um, that's surprising. Parth, your reaction was so genuine. I, well, I'm surprised. What yeah, was... it, do- it doesn't seem rehearsed. I mean, it's I know seen... Trump defunded the USPS, and, but, like, ha ha, 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 political jokes. <laughs> They're all the rage, man. <laughs> we need to get on with the show. We have things to discuss. Okay, we... okay. Well, I'll I'll just I'll just say, welcome back to Craft Services, uh, where we talk about. Wait, what is it we talk? What I forgot in that long passage of time. What what do we Part, talk about? This needs to be edited heavily. No, no, <laughs> this is great. This is great. We need. This is to a short interview, to... anyways. We need to go back to square one, and we need to rethink your involvement in the show. We need okay, to okay. think, is he necessary? Do the viewers Anyways, want welcome him? back to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. Yeah. Each week, we talk about a film, and then hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience. This week, we have Brendan Hubbard. Yep. Uh, friend, guest, uh, uh, a guest that is a friend of the show. Yes. Uh, and a friend of a friend of the show, Adam Bolerich. Yes. So thank you, Adam, for bringing us Brendan, the bear uh, himself. I, he was what a, a nice, he was a joy to talk with. What a nice man! We enjoyed his presence. He he was a great uh, guy to talk to. Uh, really fun, both I'll say it, off and on camera. Good company. Equally, thank you. Yeah, the guy you could uh, kick back a beer with, you know. Exactly. Um, but yeah, he worked on the Oscar-winning short the curfew um he has his own short coming out and uh we figured we're, we're gonna be part of his promotional press tour you know yep so trent shall we shall we cut to his interview we shall welcome to our program craft services the podcast 
Today we are interviewing Brendan Hubbard. He's worked as a producer on many shorts, as well as the films Before I Disappear and The Vanishing of Sydney Hall, and has recently written and directed his own short called The Helping Hand. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me on, guys. Of course. Um, so, as usual, we start off by asking what got you interested in film? Oh, okay. So for me, um, I actually went to school for audio recording. And uh, right out of college, I went on tour with this band called Stella Star. Basically, the the guy I was interning with, who's now our composer on all our movies, was like, can you learn to tune a guitar? And we'll we'll just take you out. It's it's barely any money. So I went on tour with this band Stella Star. And the lead singer was already like writing a few scripts and kind of shifting out of the band more into Hollywood. And I just kind of like was helping him with his reel while in, while in a little van. And, you know, we ended the tour and he immediately called me up and was like, do you want to come help out on some short films? And then, uh, you know, long story short, we won an Academy Award like a year later. Oh, my. So the uh, the, the guy from the band who you toured with was the director of The Curfew. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, yeah. He directed Curfew. First, we did a little short called Brink that uh, played at Tribeca and it was like their short of the year on their website. And we immediately went into shooting Curfew because uh, Sean wanted to prove that he could direct more because uh, he had a few scripts that he had sold to Fox and uh, some other places. And they, they wouldn't attach him because he was so young in his career. Uh, so, yeah, we went right into shooting Curfew. I ended up handling the, the film festival run for it after we wrapped and it just kind of took off. We did like 150 film festivals. Uh, which ended in the Academy Awards. So, so what do you mean by that? You handled the award season per se, like scheduling wise. So, with film festivals, like uh, I don't know if you guys have made any films, but usually, like you make a short film and you you try to get into Sundance for most people. But in our world, there's about seventy five film festivals that are Academy qualifiers. So we, he basically handed me a list and was like, you know, go for this. So I just started doing all the submissions. Back in that day, I had to like burn DVDs, like print out forms, send all that stuff out. Now it's much easier with Film Freeway, but it was a it was a little job in itself. And then we just we got into this one called Claremont Ferran and won the Audience Award, and that's like the largest short film festival. And from there, it just like it took off, and it was like every day, just like festivals asking about the film, you know, all the PR stuff, and then. We got qualified at two film festivals, which adds you into the the Oscar pool. And then from there, we just somehow got shortlisted and then nominated. And next thing you know, he's on stage with Jamie Foxx taking an Academy Award. Did you have any um, like other? Um, it wouldn't surprise me if you had a musical background being with your uh, topic of study in college. Is that a fair assumption? Uh, yeah, yeah, I played keyboard and drums in like an industrial metal band through high school and college. And then eventually got to the point where I was like, well, I'd rather make money working for bands and then movies than, you know, playing to 20 people at a little bar and, you know, walking home with less money in your pocket from drinking. Fair. Uh, was the movie industry ever an interest before you started working on shorts with, um, with, with the, the curfew director? Uh, yeah, I mean, in high school, I had all the media classes. Um, my my senior project was a little film called Finding Emo, where I uh, basically had a friend who killed himself because he couldn't cry anymore, and that was kind of the, the short film, basically. That's good wordplay. Yeah, thank you. It was, it was back before the internet was huge, so there's probably like 20 of them now. 
Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your experience as a PA working on the curfew? At that time, like I said, we were just friends making movies and he just like called me up. He's like, you want to just sleep on the couch and work on this film? I had never been on, like, I didn't know how professional it was. Like the first shoot, we were literally like, you know, throwing leaves in the air for special effects and it was super simple and just friends. And this one I showed up and like, there's trucks with gear and gaffers and grips. And it was this whole like big experience. And next thing you know, I'm like driving a truck around, like doing all this stuff in New York city, which I didn't live in at the time. So it was, it was kind of eye opening, and it like really, it really got me to the place where I was like, Oh, I really like filmmaking. Like this is, this is where I want to go. Um, so curfew ended up getting adapted into a feature film, uh, which you were an associate producer on. So uh, if you could just talk about what that jump was like, cause it's, um, that the movie's, kind of an expansion upon the original concept, I guess, is the best way to put it. Um, so, yeah, if you could just speak on that. Yeah, so with that one, again, like, we had such a small budget for the indie movie. You'd think, you know, you win an Academy Award, you're going to make some huge movie. But, you know, we were kind of in the same boat as the short film. Like, we didn't have any money. We had a couple of good casts involved. We got Ron Perlman, Emmy Rossum, Sean, the director, is the star of the movie, and then Fatima Patacek, who is the voice of Dora. So we had some names... We didn't have the budget, so what happened with me was the only way I could get paid was if I also PA'd. So I became, at the time, I was like Sean's assistant. I was PAing, and then also like subtly doing some producer tasks along the way. Like you know, we had a we had a tough time with locations. So like me and the main producer Damon Russell like spent our weekends like trying to sort that out, and you know all that sort of stuff. So it wasn't until after we wrapped that I was like. Hey, you know, I'd appreciate it if you guys bumped me up to an associate producer. And by that time, I, I knew that producing is something I enjoyed and wanted to do. So in this case, it was like, I've done all the work. I deserve the credit. And, you know, they were, Sean was 100% behind me. And, you know, they gave me the credit. And then we, we went and premiered at South By, won the audience award and got picked up by IFC. And it's been a great experience. Well, this is a different question. How long was the, um, the shooting schedule for the curfew compared to before I disappear? Uh, curfew we shot over six days so it was a little easier we shot like two and a half three pages a day uh because sean financed it himself from some some money he got from writing and he wanted to like really showcase what he can do so it was less stressful in terms of like what we have to do in a day whereas before i disappear i think it was an 18 day shoot with like two days of pickups so you're talking you know 20 page script to 100 page script and like twice the days pretty much so where did the financing for Before I Disappear come from? Did you have distribution from IFC beforehand, or was that only after South by Southwest? Uh, that was after South by. Um, so we had one of our main producers, uh, Luke and Toe, uh, and his company, Wigwam. They came on. They found the financing for the film. And then our company, Fuzzy Logic, was like the production company, per se. And we had um, ICM on board to be a sales agent. So going into South by, like that was kind of the push, like, you know, everyone wants that dream where you go to South by and you get the the tiny furniture deal of a couple million, uh, which didn't happen in that case. We had some offers and then we kind of we let the offers come in as we did more festivals. Like we grabbed, you know, another like 10 awards over the next few months. And then our international premiere we did at Venice Film Festival, uh, which is when we brought on an international sales agent. And after that, we we secured IFC. This is kind of a stupid question, but something I've always been curious about. When you're at a film festival and you're like receiving offers, is that like people coming up and 
talking to you or is that like an email you get weeks after the festival uh i mean at south by we had some immediate offers usually that's like we had a our guy at icm like on standby so any phone calls emails uh but i didn't personally see anybody like walk up to us and be like you know slip us an envelope and be like here's the deal um but they you know because south by is a big place and you already like you give all your information over so anyone that's interested they can immediately access like who the sales agent is and get the talks. Um, you're the first producer we've ever had on the show. Um, so, but you've done a variety of producing jobs. You've been an associate producer, a line producer, an executive producer, and a consulting producer. So if you could explain what the different uh, roles are for each um, position. Sure. Uh, so I guess, one thing that came along with doing the curfew festival run is that now people are curious how to do a festival run. So I get I get hired to come on to projects a lot as a consulting producer and sometimes executive producer just because like wh who I know and what I can do with the film is something that's just kind of foreign to most people. So that would be the consulting side of it. And then, you know, line producer, that's basically I'm coming on, I'm designing the budget for the film. Um, usually also like production managing at the same time, especially for short films. So hiring all the crew, uh, helping with casting, you know, any rewrites, stuff like that, uh, which essentially turns into like a full on producing job. And then associate producer, that's it's similar to like a lot of times it's like you're an assistant to the producers and like you're, you're doing anything they need to help their thing go smoothly. So it all plays off each other. Pivoting, uh, you worked with Sean Christensen again on The Vanishing of Sydney Hall, and um, we were wondering how that came to fruition and what the process was different from before it disappeared. Good question. So The Vanishing of Sydney Hall was actually the script he had wrote and sold that they wouldn't attach him as a director on um, back before curfew. Uh, actually, the day I came up to talk to him about the festival run for curfew, he got a call saying, you know, they're going to attach a bigger director like, you know, we're still pushing for you. But that was kind of the catalyst to like, you know, really force him into, you know, showing what he can do, basically. So with the vanishing of Sydney Hall, you know, he brought on this great producer, Jonathan Schwartz. It's super crispy. And they because I guess after five years of not going into production on a script, you're allowed to acquire it back. So he basically we got the funding for it. We acquired the script back from I think it was Fox. And that that gave us the rights to produce and create the film. Uh, in the meantime, they attached Logan Lerman as the star. And then, um, you know, Elle Fanning jumped on, Michelle Monaghan, Kyle Chandler, who I love. And then we just, Jonathan was able to, like, secure us some, some larger financing. And this was actually, like, our first union movie, uh, which was in itself a, a, definitely a learning experience for me because I come from a world where you just kind of do everything on an indie movie. And this was, like, Oh, there's certain people that do certain things and like you can't really tread on anyone because it's, you know, it's a tier one union. Did you have to buy it back from Fox or is it like after a certain amount of time, the rights go back to the original author? Uh, so, yeah, we had to buy it back for the initial price that he mm. got paid for it. Um, but what happens with with scripts like that, like the the price of them go up so much that production companies like decide not to make them so like fox owns it you know he's, he sold it in like 2009 or whatever so in 2012 they might have like thought back on in production maybe they paid 
a producer to like source something and then that cost brings the script price up by the time we got to the script like if fox wanted to make it they were already in like two million or something just off like the little things they've done with it so that's why they just never went into production because it wasn't indie film and like when you're already that much in the hole it's not worth like financing another three million dollar movie so we were able to buy back for the original price that sean got paid to write the script or what he got paid to sell the script oh i was just gonna say um i think um joe russo was supposed to be attached to direct it and then he went off to do some other stuff ah. um but uh the vanishing of sydney hall was distributed by a24 and we were wondering how um that came to be yeah uh, it's a similar thing like we we were able to premiere at sundance uh in one of the spotlight positions so we weren't in competition uh, because I think we had like just slightly a big enough cast to like not be like an indie indie. Um, but budget wise, like it's still an indie film. Like it was only a tier one union, which isn't that big. But uh, and what happened with that is we did Sundance uh, and we kind of just let it like fester for a bit. And then, you know, we got we got the A24 offer. And at that time, you know, they had just won the Academy Award for Moonlight, I believe. And it was just like the hot company to go with. So it just made sense that like they would do the best for our film. So, so I didn't know this, but the, the prestige of your cast can disqualify you from being considered an indie film. I think it's more like if they're doing like an indie competition So like South by, for instance, they take like nine feature films that are in the indie competition. And then they'll take another 30 or 40 that are like just spotlight. Uh, and those films usually have like a little bit bigger budget, like for South by, like I think around like a million bucks is where they, where they kind of cut off their indie competition, just because they want to. It's a film festival; they want to keep it, you know, how it how it was originally designed. Like this for indie filmmakers to get out there. With Sundance, obviously, they become such a beast that, like, you know, they they want to retain, they want to have their like hot small films that are like interesting concepts. And then I think with Sydney Hall, it was just just we had such a great cast that they didn't want to say no to it, but also to put it next to like, you know, a $500,000 movie, it would be like, it just didn't seem to fit like the, yeah, it just didn't seem to fit. If that makes sense. Um, you said a tier one union movie. Um, can you explain the tier system? Yeah. So it's just, it comes down to budget size and like, you know, when you're dealing with SAG and Teamsters and all that. So like when you're a tier one, I believe it's like one to 3 million or something is the, the the concept and then like three to three to 10 millions tier two. And then it just goes up from there. And that just determines like how much you pay a cast uh, in terms of SAG rate. So like if you're doing a, an indie film that's under 250 K, I think like you, you do like, it's like 125 a day something like that. And then when you move up to tier one, it's like 250 a day and then tier two, you know, it just goes up from there. And then also when you're a tier one, you have to, you know, involve, like teamsters who handle driving trucks and parking and all that. Even with like the GGA, the director's guild location managers have a guild and it's like, that just determines kind of their pay scale. So um, just a off question. Do you know what the budget for vanishing of Sydney hall was? I'm just curious. Uh, somewhere around 3 million, I believe. Don't um, quote me. I'm off the record. <laughs> um, uh, so you recently directed and wrote your first um short called the helping hand and we were wondering uh what was the inspiration how did it come into existence 
Cool. Yeah. So um, we had a short film called Cul-de-Sac that was doing really well in the film festival world. And we played at NBC Short Film Festival, which is basically they're looking they're looking for director talent and art talent to kind of bring into the NBC world. So while we were out in L.A., me and the director, Damon Russell, one, we had some meetings at CAA and it was kind of very clear to me that they don't care about producers. And it was like, oh, like we only want writing talent, directing talent, cast. So during that meeting, I was like, all right, I need to actually start writing, directing, start looking how I advance my career. Because being an indie producer is, is fun, but it's also stressful and it doesn't pay that much. Um, so you know, while we were out in LA, he had just had a child and we were like sitting in this Airbnb and he had a little baby monitor there. And I just kind of said to him and his, him and his wife, like, how do you know the guy that owns the Airbnb isn't talking to your kid? And it just kind of like branched out into, uh, the little short film I did about a baby monitor, essentially convincing a child to like take her parents out. Are you going to be entering it into festivals? Um, we saw that it was uploaded to dust. Um, and we were wondering how that operated and what the whole deal with that is yeah so i, I did my film festival run i uh, i played at 76 film festivals uh which is a lot of emails for me um i got to go to i got to go to can got to hang out in france for a little bit with it which was great uh we did like a spotlight screening out there uh and then yeah i did the last year and a half 76 film festivals all different sizes garnished a couple of awards and then from there i um Reached out to a friend, uh, Janina, who had a film on Alter uh, that has like 12 million views. It's called Stucco. It's really amazing. Uh, and she put me in contact with the Alter people who are, who's owned by Gunpowder Sky, which is a production company. And they saw my film and they were like, you know, we want to acquire it and release it on Halloween as part of our like, it's kind of, the channel Dust is like a sci-fi channel. So they wanted like something a little more like gory and, and horror-y for Halloween. So they picked my film. It was their Halloween release, and I'm super proud of it. I think I just hit 40,000 plays in the last couple of days, so it's been good. Yeah, that's awesome. We both watched it this morning, and we really liked it. Um, so you co-wrote the script with uh, someone named Brian Barnes, and as someone who has trouble writing with another person, um, tell me about your ability to collaborate, because I think it's hardest to do on the page. Yeah, so uh, Brian, I actually went to college with. We uh, we met at orientation because he had met Bruce Campbell, and I was super pumped about that. Mm. So we became fast friends, roommates, and then it was actually while I was in L.A. for the cul-de-sac thing that he came out to the screening, and I kind of pitched him that idea like the next morning, and he's like, great, let's write a little script. And we just kind of emailed back and forth for a little bit and just came up with a little nine-page script, and then I was lucky enough to... Uh, we actually shot two short films in the same weekend. So I piggybacked off the other crew and got to shoot my film in one day, uh, which was a little stressful to go from producing to directing your first time. But it came out it came out fine. You know, we, we had two days for uh, Damon Russell's other short. And by the time we were into it, like the crew, the crew was well oiled up and they knew it was my first time directing. So they just said, like, you know, fuck it, let's just go for it. And we we ended up doing like a 14, 15 hour day, but they were all cool with it. And uh, yeah. So with your your script writing process, was it like you wrote the first draft and then sent it to, for revisions, or was it like a, a page by page thing? Uh, so I I wrote a draft and I sent it to him, and he basically said, "This is shit. Uh, what are you trying to say and do here?" And then we kind of like did a little bit of a quick outline, 
uh, went back and forth on that. And then I sent him another draft and he said, all right, we're getting there. And then he went back in and like, uh, I guess in my words, like he made it less dumb. Mm. Cause I just like, I kind of like do my bear scratches and then he like, he's actually a screenwriter. So he went in and like, you know, made it more clear and like took the words I'm using and made it like, you know, a movie. Have you written anything creatively before or was this your first, uh, effort? Yeah, I've, I've toyed around with a bunch of other scripts in the past. I've done poetry, short stories, stuff like that. Uh, but this was the first time I was proud enough to like put it on screen. Speaking of the, the, the meaning you were looking for, um, is it, is it how technology is affecting, uh, our, our, our current generation? I guess for me, yeah, it's, it's partially like how technology is kind of ruining us all. And like, we're so, we're not observant to what we're doing. So the idea of bringing in a new child and just, you know, being passive, aggra- passive aggressive parents that don't really care mm. and just think like, oh, we'll just Alexa will take care of it or whoever. And like just having that backfire in such a dark way was very intriguing to me. And I obviously love horror films. We were confused by the ending with the dead wagon cat. And we thought we could ask for some clarification from the source. So the idea behind the ending was, you know, everyone in the community is kind of, you know, there are other parents that were using this device and the device has been spending all these years kind of curating like the D-Day basically. So the idea of the, the girl with the cat and the wagon was like, oh, she went off. She like killed her, killed her pet. And like, if you look around the background, there's like little red boxes all over the neighborhood. Mm. So it's just kind of like, you know, all the kids like took it into their hands to like take care of their parents and let's move on and start this world over based off this like deity basically that's controlling them. So is it supposed to be a a Pulp Fiction situation where we don't know what's in the, the new box or is it just supposed to be weapons of mass destruction to kill the parents? Uh, I kept it very ambiguous because I find that the the best short films leave the audience asking like, well, what happens? What's next? Because in my in my world, it's like, oh, I'd love to do a feature of it. So let the audience ask these questions and maybe someone will be interested enough to be like, well, let's let's see what's next. That's a good marketing tactic. Yeah, it it seems to piss some people off. Like if you go through the comments on the dust, it's like a lot of people are upset that I didn't give more but that's exactly what I try to do. So it gives me a chuckle. Um, you've got a bunch of upcoming projects on IMDb listed that are in post-production right now. Uh, we were wondering what you have planned immediately next for this year slash, I guess this year's almost over. So next year. Uh, yeah. So I uh, pre COVID shot a film in Iceland called everything in the end uh, directed by Melissa Fitzsimmons, who just uh, was nominated for the Lynn uh, Shelton grant. Uh, which is a big deal. Uh, so that we're looking for a, um, a world premiere, basically. We're doing, you know, all the Sundance submissions and all that stuff. Uh, so hopefully that will get a good premiere and, you know, maybe IFC will buy it. Who knows? Uh, and then just release my short. I'm writing two features and a couple shorts. I'm also working on a narrative podcast with uh, your very close friend, Adam. And, oh. uh, and Sean from Curfew. Uh, so we're going to record that in a couple weeks. And it's got some big actors in it. So very excited to get that going. Uh, and then I have another feature called The Last Victim that has Ron Perlman, uh, Ali Lautner, and Ralph Enison from The Witch that we're also in the same boat as Everything the End, just trying to 
find the right spot for it. And it's kind of weird with COVID because half the festivals are canceling. Can you give us a log, a log line for your, uh, for your upcoming feature? Uh, yeah. So everything in the end is about a lonely traveler that kind of finds himself in Iceland, uh, while the world is also it's ending. So it's a very like subtle, hmm, tough to say it's, it's kind of environmental, but it's kind of not, um, but I think it's a very beautiful piece and Iceland itself is, is kind of fascinating. Uh, and the other feature, the last victim is basically like uh, no country for old men meets hell or high water. It's just like this, you know, Western banger with a lot of murder and death and, you know, Ron Perlman kills it in the role. Uh, we, I was just going to uh, ask about him. Um, I love Ron Perlman. I, I got to ask what he's like, what, uh, cause you've worked with him now twice, I guess. Um, on both uh, Before I Disappear and this. He's amazing. Uh, what happened with Before I Disappear was, you know, while we were casting, he came up and I immediately told Sean, like, you know, this this dude's amazing. Let's get Ron Perlman. Sean was behind it. We brought him in and we had two days to shoot with him. And the first day he like calls me to set and he just like introduces me to Ron Perlman. And he's like, all right, well, you're going to be in a scene with him. And I'm just like, you know, all PA'd up. And I'm like, what, what do you mean I'm going to be in a scene? And then I spent the next two days like smoking fake cigarettes and like watching Ron Perlman throw people against walls. And he's very terrifying when he acts, uh, which is why I think he's so powerful. Um, yeah, he's great. I mean, when we brought him to South by for the premiere and like all I remember is like someone noticed him and took us behind the bar and he's like made sure I went with him. We were just taking shots of Jameson and having a good old Austin, Texas party. That sounds epic. Um, so you've worked primarily in shorts um, compared to features. Is that a matter of personal preference or just like what's become available to you? Or And we were wondering, like, besides duration, obviously, is there any major differences between production? I mean, I, I love short films. Obviously, it's like it's how I got started. It's it's where like a lot of success success came from that like kept me in this world. Uh, and like I said, a lot of times I kind of come in to consult, uh, which, you know, is, it's good and bad. I mean, it pays the bills, but also like, there's a lot of short films that come my way where it's kind of tough to like tell someone it's, it's not like the Sundance darling. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I think I prefer short films just cause you know, you're in and out, like you post productions, two, three weeks, you shoot the film and then, you know, you just wait to go to the festivals and have fun. Whereas features, it's like just a big headache of like, where's the money coming from? How are we going to do this? You know, you, you constantly get your, your shoot days cut and all that stuff. So I prefer short films. There's just no money in them. That's fair. Um, <laughs> we were, <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that. Um, you, you, your, this is a secret small talk question, but um, uh, your nickname is bear. Uh, can you explain that? Is it your appearance? Uh, as you can tell, partially my appearance, uh, but that that name actually came from Sean Christensen. He, uh, we were on, we were on that tour, like I told you, and, and I used to have this shirt that just had a bear's face on it, and it just it kind of immediately matched my own face. Uh, so he just started like casually calling me the bear, and it just once we got on like curfew set, it just it just exploded, and now. Yeah, every phone call, every person that hits me up, they're like, can we call you Bear? I'm like, yeah, sure, go for it. 
<laughs> That's not a bad problem to have. Um, speaking of small talk, the internet tells me that you've toured internationally with Father John Misty and Dr. Dog. Is this true? This is absolutely true. Do tell. Uh, I, I really uh, like Dr. Dog, hence my curiosity. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, those dudes are awesome. I've been with them the last four years. I still tour them when the, the world is open. We actually did a tour that ended on March 1st this year, and then, yeah, immediately everything got shut down. Uh, but those guys are great. The Father John Misty tour was was pretty epic because I, I came on as a stage manager for the U.S. tour. And then somehow it turned into like, oh, we're taking you to Europe. So it turned into like a three month tour, um, which was it was fun. And then I, I toured with Kurt Vile as well. I sold merch for him. So that was a little more low key, but also a great dude. So what does a, um, a, a stage manager do? This is kind of outside our realm of expertise, but here we are. Uh, I mean, it's, it varies. Um, like for Dr. Dog, like I basically handle all the gear. I'm basically a guitar tech as well. So handle all the guitar changes. Sometimes I wear silly costumes on stage, but it's generally like, you know, going back to unions, like some, some venues have unions. So you need to know like how to talk to the people working at a venue versus how to talk to your, your own people. Uh, and that kind of, yeah, you just manage the stage basically and all the gear and all that fun stuff. Um, well, I guess we can start to wrap up a little bit. Um, we like to ask everybody how you've been handling the coronavirus. It's the hot topic of discussion. And um, are you still able to operate professionally or have you been unemployed for the past six months? Uh, the, the first few months were a little rough. I was a little like, okay, well, touring's done because we, we, Dr. Dog had a few, few tours set up for the fall. Like, well, touring world's done. No one's shooting movies. Uh, no one wants to take a chance at film festivals. So my world pretty much shut down until, I'd say, mid-May. And then, uh, and then I got a call from Sean. He's like, we're launching this company. We're going to start off with podcasts uh, with the idea of going to TV and doing productions late, later on. Uh, so in the last two months, I've been very busy taking Zoom calls every day, working on casting, and you know all the you got to do sag now for like for new media podcasts and stuff so it's been ramping up and then you know the festival world's kind of opening up internationally so things are picking up uh so you said you have this new narrative podcast can you tell us the premise or can you not reveal that confidential info uh yeah i could probably talk a little bit about it it's basically and what's it called plug your brand it's so uh the podcast is essentially about this hostage situation that happened in the 70s in Indianapolis. Uh, I can't reveal who our lead role is, but he's pretty big. And once you know it, you'll be pumped on it. Um, but the story is about this guy, Tony Karitsis, who like held a guy at gunpoint and kind of curated this hostage situation through through the local news or sorry, the local radio guy who was. He was a big fan of him, so he calls him, and that guy becomes the the hostage negotiator. True story. And how many episodes do you think it'll be? Uh, we're doing eight episodes. It's going to be about thirty minutes for each episode. And say the name. It's called American Hostage. There you go. Well, um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, 
we really appreciate your time. Everyone, this is Brendan Hubbard from the Before I Disappear and the Vanishing of Sydney Hall fame. Watch The Helping Hand. It's on Dust Now. Look it up on YouTube. Well, we'll put a, we'll put a link to it in the description. Yep. Um, thanks so much. Hey, thank you, guys. Appreciate your time. Parth, wasn't that interview swell? Didn't you enjoy it? I had a great time. Uh, we should probably make note to our viewers that this interview was recorded a while ago. Um, it was in case last there's some year. Yeah, it was. It was October. Very timely. Uh, so joke. there's really? there's some there's yeah, some we... outdated information, but uh, yeah. Yeah, we discussed mostly seasonal things like autumn and Halloween and pumpkin picking and uh, corn mazes. So, right, all of those things are featured in our interview. So in early winter, you're not really gonna enjoy the interview. Not gonna like it. Not gonna. You see, you see what it is? Is we we recorded the intro intro part of this sh- episode. We recorded that during the interview, then waited uh, this whole time, and Trent still hasn't gotten his debit card, which so is weird because par- now it's been a few months. So Parth, did you just like watch Pulp Fiction for the first time, and you're like? asynchronicity you know like splicing the movie cross-cutting going between different storylines wait dude are you trying to do an imitation of quentin tarantino that's exactly how he talks i was kind of doing an impression of you trying to talk intelligently about pulp fiction and how you're going to incorporate the uh well the in the eyes of the 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 narrative elements into our podcast okay look here if I'm trying to do something non-chronological, it's not going to be based off fucking Quentin Tarantino, okay? Fuck you. It's Christopher fucking Nolan. All right? Oh, so He's my fucking like, guy. Parth's like, I saw Memento for the first time yesterday. It's awesome. Have you checked it out? Parth, who's the, uh, who, we're, we're going to have additional episodes, am I wrong? And they're going to have to include guests, maybe interviews, and, uh, tell us what you know. All right. Well, listen here, Trent. Mm. We here at uh, Craft Services, we provide quality entertainment. We like to get you good guests, and I'm pleased as bunch to tell you that we got the production manager for Doug Lyman's latest film, Lockdown, which you can see on HBO Max. Parth, uh, what has Doug Lyman directed? Oh, n- nothing. Just uh, The Born Identity. Just uh, Edge of Tomorrow starring Tom Cruise. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith starring Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, the film where they fell in love. Also, okay. Swingers! And Swingers. Which, and uh... Let's fun... not forget his most acclaimed film, Jumper. <laughs> Parth, fun fact, I'm named after Vince Vaughn's character from Swingers. Are you actually? Yeah, that's my party trick. It's not a skill, it's just, uh, a piece of information, I say, but it's true. Wow. I'm Our, proud of you. Who are you named after? There's John Favreau's character in Swingers, right? Who's named Parth? <laughs> I'm glad we settled that. It was it was a pleasure talking with Brendan Hubbard. We're so thankful he could take some time out of his day to talk with us. Um, please check out his short, The Helping Hand. Like he said, it's on Dust, which is on YouTube, and we're gonna put a link in the description below. Well, I guess this isn't YouTube. Yeah. It's not like below, but you know what I'm saying. Stay tuned for more. See you. We'll see, see you next week, guys. We'll see if Parth uh, after we we'll, we'll see if Parth makes a return to the show. Maybe we'll, we'll maybe see. We'll see if Trent check. We'll and if I make a return, we'll see if Trent gets his debit card. <laughs> maybe we try a few months without Parth. 
Huh. All right, that's okay. something to think about. Okay. Have fun editing your episodes, Trent. How about that? Hmm? See, see you next week. See you guys on cra- on crafts on our show, craft services, the podcast starring. What was that joke? <laughs> what? Starring Parth. Did you forget my last name? <laughs> <laughs>